Hey, Podcastians, welcome to another episode of Linux for the Rest of Us. My name is Door to Door Geek, aka Steve McLaughlin, um, uh, nerd, Baltimore area. Thank God I don't live in Baltimore because I'll probably be shot dead or I suffer from a horrible uh, STD by now. Um, this podcast is all about Linux. We try not to focus on the enterprise side of it because that's boring. That's ridiculously boring, mundanely ridiculously boring. We also try not to focus on like the kernel development kind of things because, again, we don't want to put everybody to sleep, including ourselves. Um, this show is brought to you uh, completely ad-free thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash podnuts. Uh, and I will say this show is brought to you by uh, Donald G. Um, people out there might know him better as 5150. Um, I often say to uh, friends, loved ones, and podcast listeners, this is the death time of year. Make sure you reach out to people. Make sure you take care of people you care about because this is the time of year where bad things seem to happen. Uh, 5150 uh, was a really, really nice guy who kind of abruptly left us uh but he definitely supported this network and i can tell you right now we definitely did everything in our power to support him back and speaking of support uh i'm joined again by bruce patterson how's everything going bruce yeah i'm doing pretty well super bowl turned out to be exactly what i thought uh i chose the chiefs in seven they won by 11 so we all win well here's my question though i watched the game and i kept thinking if this was almost any other year Almost any other team that would have been in the Super Bowl would have destroyed these teams. Neither of these teams seemed like they were great. Oh, they weren't. None of them were. In fact, I think the best uh, team actually actually for uh, at least the AFC got knocked out pretty early. And, of course, that was the Baltimore team I, I had as kind of the favorites going into this. But, eh, they surprisingly disappointed me. They were engineered to beat uh, teams like... Uh, you know, the Patriots, and yeah, actually the funny thing is, is they did, but they didn't meet them in the playoffs, so I guess it didn't matter. Yeah, I'll say long story short about sports is that's why they play every week, and that's why gambling is as successful as it is, because you really can't tell. You really never know what's going to happen when the rubber meets the road, kind of like you really never know what to expect when you hit install on the, the latest Linux distribution until you see that first boot screen. Yeah, you got that right. You know, although I think with all of everything being said, uh, today was actually the inaugural kickoff of the XFL. The XFL. There we go. Say that three times fast. Yeah, the secret inaugural kickoff because the first one I could not believe how long ago it was, Bruce. I want to say it was two thousand one. Yeah, that sounds about right. In fact, my only disappointment for is that when the league folds again for the second time after about the ninth game, there there used to be an outlet store around here called Building 19. You should have seen all the XFL stuff I got for like nine bucks, eight bucks. I've got the complete coin set of the original team. So eh, it means only a very little to me. So we'll see what happens. Well, it, it's a Vince McMahon endeavor. The difference is. Last time he was doing it, trying to buck the NFL hard. Um, this time, it seems like he has some buy-in from the NFL, and I believe there are some NFL owners that are actually on board as well. So it wouldn't shock me if we actually do see success, but we also see it completely never able to overtake the actual NFL. Well, I'm kind of curious about the moves because right now there's also rumblings of the WWE is up for sale. 
and that means ousting Vince. So there's some intrigue coming up. We'll have to see how that plays out, too. Well, I'll say this isn't this week in sports entertainment business, but I'll say it like this. Vince has proven over 40 years he is one of the smartest businessmen in sports entertainment, period, bar none. Maybe there's some Premier League soccer businessmen who are better that I don't know of, but Vince in the United States is the best there is, the best there ever was, the best that there will be kind of thing. And if he sells it, trust me, he has a very good reason to do it. Well, I think one of the most, more intriguing parts about this is that on one hand, you've got a man who literally has a sport by the throat but then you look at a sport like boxing kind of the same thing you know it's uh it used to be between don king and uh bob arum but you know it's funny those two just could never you know they both wanted to be kings of everything but the problem is is in dividing the kingdom you know the the sport turned out to be ugh, whatever the remnants of it is today you know uh inflated records against non-challengers and it's just like eh, it, it really isn't the same so uh i don't know i mean is there a pure form of sport out there anymore that's the big question uh no no not not even remotely close um and I'll say it like this, talent goes where the money's at, okay, period. And to be honest, bringing it back to Linux again, this is how Linux came of age. This is how open source became to be the predominant place where business deals are done. It's because people were willing to pay lots of money for people with open source talents and abilities. There's only one Linus Torvalds, okay, there's not two. The other guy who tried to be Linus Torvalds was RMS with the herd colonel, and he just couldn't get it off the ground. And he couldn't stop picking his nose and toes long enough to actually, I guess, get it done. Where Linus was unbelievably, I believe, OCD to get the Linux kernel at least done. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't perfect, but it was good enough to get things running on top of it. And then you had other people wanting to develop on top of it, which just was a nonstop seemingly cascade of popularity. Granted, that took 20 years for it to actually get any kind of mainstream appeal, but I think it's finally getting to that point to where everybody in every business sense is going to interact with open source software or Linux directly, whether they know it or not. Well, and I can't wait to see what ultimately will end up you know, happened given the fact that right now Microsoft actually charges for just about everything now. And, you know, home users, when they made the move over from 7 to 10, found that they started to having to pay for other things if they didn't make the upgrade in time. Uh, Office, it's only a matter of time before uh, that actually turns into a yearly license because Microsoft let slip last October uh, the charging model for it, because when some people upgraded their uh, OS to Windows 10, they got a surprise message saying, you know, something around the lines of, um, what is it? Uh, it's $200 for a yearly charge on the OS. And that was not supposed to be released then. But anyway, that kind of shows you what they're looking at and what they're hoping to uh, do. And, you know, again, uh, this could be a really good moment for Linux should they decide how they want to handle it. But, you know, quite frankly, it's it's never been in the hands of the Linux Foundation or anybody else. It's been left to folks like us to 
mildly suggest an alternate OS. Well, yes, and kind of yes. It's been in our hands to suggest it, but it's really been in the hands of the people who are passionate about developing it. It's one of those, which came first, the well-developed applications or the people suggesting to use it, or, you know what I mean? It's one of those things. And it was really kind of everything had to happen. And the like to me, the most best example I can give is LibreOffice, where we had, um, I want to say it was first called maybe Star Office, and then it hybrated to something else, and then it became Open Office, and then it became LibreOffice. And now it is nearly at the place where if you went into businesses that didn't have to worry about other people sending them complex office documents, very particular words I use right there, complex office documents. If they don't get complex office documents from outside sources and they use LibreOffice, you could change the icons and stuff. And most users would never even realize that they're not using Microsoft Office. It is, is my honest belief. You're correct. I think one of the things that surprises me, though, is that you also have that minor contingent of folks who actually rely on, of all things, Google Office stuff, you know, Google Docs uh, and their spreadsheets. And, you know, again, I, I never quite took to them, even though they're readily available at any point. I just I don't know. I mean, I think the only benefit to Google and what they were doing is the ability to share outright to anybody they choose to. So uh, that was probably the key. And I don't know, maybe Microsoft and SharePoint slash Teams or whatever, maybe they may, might succeed with that. But right now, LibreOffice is the clear winner for me. Yeah, and I will say we do have other things out there that try to compete with Google directly with their collaboration kind of things. There's the one that's owned by Yahoo. I can never remember the name. It's a pay for a product, but it seems to work good is what people say. But it's the kind of thing you have to be like all in or I don't think it's really sustainable is what I'll say. Um, I will say uh, uh, a quick little update, too, about the Pinebook Pro, the ARM-based laptop that I got uh, thanks to a listener, um, Captain Zero. Um, the best thing about it, Bruce, the best reason I can tell you that you maybe should entertain the idea of buying one is that you cannot install Microsoft Teams on it. <laughs> well there you go sold you've sold one to me yeah and, and i will say there's a guy in our mattermost server who has the pine time watch and the pine phone he just literally got today um february uh 8th so i'm like really jealous but at the same token um you know i got the pine book pro he has the pine time and the pine phone um and I can say it just flat out like this. No problem saying it out loud. You have other companies out there doing open source type hardware. Okay. But there are, they are obviously completely money grubbing. Okay. And it's because it makes good business sense to money grub. You know, you take a look at these other companies offering Linux laptops. That's been around for years. They've been around for years because they charge like a 200% over the price that they pay for it for these laptops. And then you have these people out there who want to be seen with, with these Linux laptops paying their, in my honest opinion, extreme revenue, like Apple, like prices, um, just so they can say they have a Linux laptop and good for them. Good for those companies. They're able to succeed. But pine 64 is the company that's not out to make a profit. They're out to make a difference. And I really appreciate companies that try to do that instead of just thinking how they can please the, uh, 
shareholders or the owner's grandkids. Well, also, let's not forget about other fine projects, too, like the uh, one laptop per child. You know, quite frankly, I thought that was all but done, but uh, there was actually an update on the DistroWatch site last week. Uh, so it looks like that's still actively engaged, and they're still working on the OS around it. So props to them for that. Very cool. And I think they also made the one tablet per child as well. Um and a really quick uh, address of an email that we got. We actually got more than one email, but uh, we, Bruce got one email directly that uh, a user, a user, a, you know, everyone's a user, a listener, a viewer, I hope at least, uh, like like sprayed this email to a bunch of different podcasts. Um, and it basically says from Daniel, I am trying Fedora 31 since I use Orica screen reader i need no monitor but when the monitor is off the computer does not want to work which i'll say is a super vague way of putting it is there a way to tell fa tell fa um fa dora to not bother with the monitor um and i'll just say and i'll just say it like this um to get good tech support you have to provide good information is what i'm going to say um more like insane levels of inf information that you think as the end user is obvious now me and bruce we talk about other podcasts the other podcast i want to mention again is you are not so smart podcast where he talks about cognitive biases and a good example of a cognitive bias in this email is in is um in um in um poster syndrome daniel is taking for granted we know things that we can't possibly know about his setup. Um, so what I'll say is this, 99% likelihood, this has nothing to do with Fedora. It might not happen on other operating systems, but this is not an operating system issue. I'm gonna guess this is actually a hardware issue, kind of like the old error message, keyboard not attached, press F1 to continue, uh, which we all at least heard of or know about. But I will say there's a little one, a 0.1% chance this is an operating system issue. And what I'll ask you, Daniel, is to search all one word, no mode set, N-O-M-O-D-E-S-E-T. And it looks like if you put that as a kernel parameter, this could be a thing that could make it work. I will say I've only found this applicable on Fedora Core 11, which you say you're on Fedora 31. This says it's for Fedora Core 11. I don't know if it's applicable. Oh, that's a good call. Actually, you mentioned a podcast. I want to mention another podcast, too, one we're all familiar with, or at least should be. Uh, last, uh, Not this past Wednesday, the one before, um, I dropped in and listened to the folks from Tilts. And uh, I got to tell you, it was one of those episodes where it was totally tech talk all the way through, which greatly pleased me because sometimes it's kind of like a, a wheel of fortune. You're not sure exactly what you're getting when you tune into it. But uh, oh, I got to tell you, when they are on top of their game, there is not a better podcast in terms of the tech talk that goes on there. Uh, again, for a lot of the listeners who aren't familiar with it, it is worth your time checking out every once in a while. Well, and I'll say it like this. The good thing about that show is you don't know what to expect when you hit play. The bad thing about the show is you don't know what you're going to get until you hit play. Um, the knowledge that the individuals have, the thing I like about it is they're all completely different. They all know their things. And it's painfully obvious that most of them should be getting paid a good amount of money because it's painfully obvious they know what the hell they're talking about. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to remember. There's one member of that group that actually had, um, uh, what is it, the Planet Blogs. Uh, and that site I kind of missed because what it was was kind of an aggregation of all the uh, uh, Linux sort of community members who would send a link out to uh, this person. He'd post it up on the blogs. And, uh, you know, it was a nice sort of roll call of sort of a who's who, everything from, you know, to include Hacker Public Radio, uh, Linux Basics, uh, you know, things like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's longstanding. In fact, like I said before, uh, they run concurrently. They and DistroWatch have been running for the exact same amount of time in terms of podcasts which is amazing very cool very cool um the other emails i'm going to at least address uh are from brad alexander and i'll say it like this brad you need a podcast number one brad number two if you don't maybe you need a blog if you don't have a blog maybe you need a news journal if you don't have a news journal maybe you need a magazine if you don't have magazine i don't know maybe you need a pulpit is maybe the right answer. I don't know, but I don't read emails from my boss that are this long and they give me reviews at the end of the year. And you know, they're like responsible for giving me money. Um, I suffer from, uh, ADD, ADHD, however you want to put it, uh, to where there's no way under any circumstance, I am uh, able to sit down and read, uh, at least, uh, one of these emails that was insanely long. And it literally, made me just close my email, not open my email for 24 hours when I saw the length of this email. But, and this is what I'll say. Linus Torvalds is not wrong, period. You know why? Because he's not speaking upon facts. He's speaking upon feelings, okay? Uh, what he says, he says for reactionary sake. And then what Greg Crow Hartman and the other people say, they're the fact takers, okay? You have to think of Linus Torvalds as a politician. And if you know anything about politicians, they all lie forever because that's what they do. They're there to get a reaction. That's what Linus did. He got a reaction. And But I'll follow it up with, it's one of those things, It I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but I can't plausibly see how it matters because I don't know anybody that cares passionately about ZFS at all. I understand why some people think for the future it has some importance, but here, in February 2020, I really don't think it's that important. Well, and again, it, one of the things I did appreciate from the chain of emails is that it certainly gave me a, a historical aspect of it. You know what? I can do this one better. Um, I can grab those emails and actually post them uh, both longhand on my blog as well as actually on our um, uh, Facebook feed. I've been meaning to get to that for the last couple of uh uh days and this is a good opportunity so you know what i think that's a great forum for it very cool very cool and i will have these emails there's i think three total emails i will have these emails in the notes as well because here's the whole thing there's no doubt I, when i said brad needed a podcast it isn't so he could not communicate with me it's so i could listen to what he says because it's obvious the guy knows the guy knows what he's talking about uh, and this is not my first interaction with brad i know brad from you know 10 years ago whatever really smart guy really well thought out guy um and i do believe that he has many accurate points to say but at the same token if i try to read them i'm pretty sure i'm going to need um chemical stimulation and i'm going to try to have all of these um emails in the notes as well so anyone who wants to partake and read them you can and to send feedback to me you can 
I can forward it to Brad if you want. Oh, and on the, that note, too, uh, let's see. There was a, um, oh, boy, I just had a senior moment. Why don't I pass by until I can remember? Oh, he actually did have a podcast at one point as well. He did mention that in the first emails. But, yeah, you know what? Again, still keep the feedback coming in because I, I absolutely enjoyed reading them because uh, it also gives me a different perspective. Uh, and like anything else, one of the great credos that I've taken from the old Linux Basics groups is uh, I learn as you learn. So, you know, I will embrace that. Well, and to me, the biggest the biggest thing I honestly take from his emails is I know there is a lot that I don't know. And I don't claim to know everything. What I claim to know about this topic is just we're getting by right now. Okay. I don't see a huge failing in our file system ecosystem. Number one, number two, in the courts of America, facts don't matter. Just look at the Oracle lawsuit against Google for Java. Google didn't even use Java. And how much money did that cost Google in lawyers? It's insane. Um, in the court of America's facts don't matter. Um, narratives matter. So if Linus, the Linux foundation, kernel developers, whatever, don't see it, that it's something that they should incorporate into the Linux kernel because of some reptilian response of fear of not wanting to get sued. I can't tell them they're wrong. And if anyone else thinks they can tell them they're wrong, I think they need to slow down. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you're correct. I mean, one of the worst parts about it is that when the day is done, you're also a tech company that hopes that this lawsuit doesn't land in an East Texas court, because at that point, you already are behind the eight ball. Testify. Testify now. I'm going to ask you, act like I'm a third grader. And why would an East Texas court make any difference, Bruce? Well, for some bizarre reason, they thought that they, <laughs> all of the, this East court, uh, this East Texas court is very, very company friendly uh, to show you the great lengths uh, and fear that uh, a, a landing a lawsuit in a court in East Texas brings Samsung has literally donated millions of dollars to this town in hopes that it gives them a good reputation so when their cases come to town, people can look at them as, well, Samsung has given us X amount of dollars, so let's vote their way this time. They're literally buying the votes, and it's one of the last shameless places where you you literally can buy a vote for this, and it's a shame because... There are legit companies that uh, legit companies have been fighting for years uh, for no real reason. In fact, uh, patents started here first, and then of course we had the famous MP3 stuff that followed suit, and it's just been one trail after another in this court, and it's really a shame because this is actually where justice has been perverted tenfold, tenfold. One last item about Samsung. Uh, four years ago, the city decided they needed an ice rink. This is East Texas. Yep. How cold is it going to be down there? And yet Samsung made it happen. So shame on those folks. Yeah, it's not a, a small area, this East Texas 
jurisdiction region or whatever. But yes, you go to that region and you go to like a church bake sale and you see it sponsored by HP. And then you go to like a kid's band thing and you see it sponsored by Sony. And then you go to like the local football team doing a game and you see it sponsored by, uh, you know, uh, um, Red Hat or whatever, some big main company throwing money because every company throws money because for some reason, companies down there are free to do anything they want to do monetarily wise. And there's no repercussions. There's no limits on what they can do. And they literally go close to where these judges live because they know who the judges are. They literally know this judge's kid goes to this church. Give that church money. This judge's wife goes to this place. Give them money. This judge's grandchild goes to this school, give that school money because there's no better way to convince people how serious you are than by giving them money. And that's the one thing about America that I think holds true, whether it's good reasons or bad reasons, people are influenced by money. And just to sort of underscore, there's actually an article from uh, Ars Technica in 2013 that actually goes to explain why we are where we are in uh, in these East Texas courts. So uh, that's posted in the uh, YouTube channel uh, in our chat. So definitely check it out when you have a moment. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I will also say like this um, again, I don't want to discourage Brad from sending emails. I will just say if you could have things maybe more concise, it would, and I don't want to say speak to me like a fourth grader, but kind of think of me as someone with the attention of a fourth grader is what I'll say. And that's, and that, and that's the most honest way I can say it. Um, so I want to again, say thanks to everyone for their emails, podcast at Linux for the rest of us.com. Uh, thanks everyone for their support, everyone for their voicemail, seven Oh seven, six pod nut. Um, this was just an email that when I saw, I just literally said, I don't know if we can read this on the show, because if I try to read it, I'm pretty sure I'm going to mess it up so bad it's going to come off wrong. Well, and also when we're talking, it was a pretty extensive discussion. So if anything, I think that that email was more about uh, having a panel lecture and talking about it. So um, that's just enough where it's outside of our realm to do so. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, the other question I was going to have, was there anything that you've done in the last uh, week or two, Bruce, that you find interesting on Linux? Because I will say, like, to me, I'll just say I'm again genuinely impressed at the rock-solid nature of Debian through time. Um, I've now had, like, two or three installations that are Debian-based that have not had any issues for, like, three years of just doing um, apt updates, apt upgrades. And then when the time comes changing the app sources list to the new things and everything just seems to just run really fine. Um, and then I have the complete opposite experience. I loaded Manjaro arm edition on a micro SD card for my Pinebook pro. I booted up the first time. I am shocked at how fast the damn thing runs. I am shocked at how well it like performs. I connect to my local Wi-Fi. Everything works great. I reboot and then I can't connect again to my local Wi-Fi hotspot, but I can connect to my phone hotspot just fine. And I have no idea why. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because shortly before the show, I was actually thinking about that very question. What have I been doing with Linux in the last week? Actually, more like the last two weeks. And the answer is not very much. Um, 
And so I think one of the things that I, I am going to start doing is, you know, we talked about setting up a list of things to, you know, go over. And I did see your link regarding uh, VPN, in, you know, being added as a module into uh, the Linux kernel. And I'm intrigued by that because I also uh, uh, read the article uh, on the um, on their website too, which uh, I didn't. Uh, WireGuard, I guess, is uh, is it a subsidiary of Wireshark, or uh, I guess the same company? I'm not quite sure, but uh, I was intrigued by that, and I may actually even try my hand at having it installed also on my machine uh, once it actually becomes available uh, in the kernel, and that's what they're expecting April of 2020. Yeah, it is coming here really quick. What I was going to ask you, Bruce, was if you could just type uh, like one line into the uh, chat um, because by default, not everybody can put links in the uh, YouTube chat at least. So if you just type anything into the chat, I will be able to give you moderator status to where you can post links in the chat. And I'll say, if anyone does want to come out live, there's multiple ways for you to keep in touch with us, um, either Facebook, Twitter, uh, Discord, Mattermost, YouTube. If you just subscribe to us, you'll be notified when we go live. We try to go live around 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, East Coast Time on uh, Saturday nights. But if you uh, subscribe to any of those channels, you'll be able to see the notification before we actually go live. And yeah, WireGuard in the Linux kernel is one of those things that it's really difficult to actually explain to somebody on on its importance okay and i'll just and this is what i'll say we all remember the um and let me i don't know if we all remember we had an issue in open ssh that turned out to be a bug that was in ssh for like a decade it was literally like a friggin' decade we had this issue in open ssh and nobody knew about it it was the kind of thing that governments could have been exploiting for 10 years and nobody knew okay now with that said the code base of WireGuard is literally like 10 times less than the code base in OpenSSH, okay? Smaller code base means less chance for errors, means easier to audit, means easier to understand, means easier for someone to jump on board and code for, code with, help, put code into. WireGuard is much, much, much less code, plus offers uh, the, um, 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 benefactor of being new so you don't have to worry about uh, um, uh, accepting old stuff and like keeping old stuff into your code base you can literally start fresh and everyone who's looked at the code base agrees it is unbelievably secure in its basicness so when this comes around here's the thing you can already install WireGuard as an application on Linux, on BSD, on Mac OS X, and on Windows. And the real thing is, by this time next year, when you hear about tunnels being done, communications being done, transfers being done across distances, across companies, across ecosystems, the odds are they're going to be using this WireGuard VPN because it is going to be so simple to implement and so trustworthy that you have it set up right. It will change the game, and in no time, whenever you load up a Microsoft X server and you say connect to this, it's going to be using WireGuard on the back end, and that I can basically guarantee. 
Well, I'm also looking forward to it, too, because at this point, uh, along with this, it'll also force me to have a better understanding of, you know, GPG keys, uh, things like that, because, uh, oh, you know, surprisingly, um, you know, as much as I'm a big fan of security, I am woefully behind in understanding, you know, the basic ideas behind this. I mean, I get why we have these uh public and private keys, but I, I also want to be able to be a lot more comfortable using them in, in my emails because whenever it's funny because one of the things that Klaatu always did, whenever you got an email from him, you always knew it was from him because he was all, he always had his emails signed with his, uh, his, um, GPG key. So, uh, again, things, more things to throw on the, on the stack. Yeah. I'll, Here's the way I'll just say that. Um, if you were to connect to my instance of OwnCloud or NextCloud, sorry, NextCloud right now, you would see it has a self-signed cert. And I tried to explain to a friend, the cert error you're getting is a lie. The cert area says you could be compromised. There's a security risk. Somebody could be stealing your in information. No. There's two reasons to have an SSL cert. One is to encrypt the communication between two points. Okay. That's one purpose of a, a, a of a cert. The second reason is to authenticate who they are relying on the chain of authenticity going back to the cert authority who issued the certificate. I know for a fact many governments are certificate authorities, aka I don't trust certificate authorities. I trust me issuing a cert. So when I got an email from Cloud2, the only thing I was really aware of was somebody is sending this GPG key at the end of the email. And only after time am I able to say, and, all, and the only thing I could say with any certainty was I'm getting the same, um, I'm getting emails from the same party. But until I met him in person, I could not authenticate if this GPG key was in fact the right one. But that was the kind of thing. It made me feel better that he was doing this. So somebody out there actually cares about security. Well, that's also another interesting subject for another time as well. Authentication and who you really are. Because again, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Yeah. And I will say, like, I, I've been trying to explain to my kid, um, you got to be careful with who you trust, everything on the internet, you got to act like it's real life. If you're walking down the street and somebody stops you and says, hey, do you want free money? Are you going to believe them? Are you going to trust them? And the answer is no. So you cannot believe what you hear other people say on the internet. And I did, I I have now two people convinced they listen to Darknet Diaries, Darknet Diaries, literally one of like the top five podcasts I listen to. Again, I listen to over 150 podcasts. Uh, Darknet Diaries is up there. Damn good. But it is, it does require a bit of education to listen to it because it isn't a security expert, I'll say, uh, communicating with other security experts. So some of it's going to be over people's heads. But for normal people like my son, I tried to get him to listen to a podcast from AARP called The Perfect Scam, where they go through scams, how they happen, why they happen, and how easy it is to get fooled by them. And what you learn in that podcast is everybody in the world is scammable. It only takes a split second of you not thinking and making a decision to get scammed. And young millennials are scammed as much as senior citizens. The biggest difference is senior citizens have more money to lose. So 
that's the ones we hear about in the news. Um, millennials are getting scammed just as much. And there was a recent scam going on with millennials who are in college getting fake emails that appear from their college telling them that they are now um, their job application was uh, done now um, because uh, colleges are helping kids get jobs. So they get a fake email from the college saying, here, we helped you get a job, go here, do this, and you'll get paid. And it turns out they get scammed. Well, again, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the, the slickness of these emails because uh, I got one from Bank of America the other day, and I was shocked because, you know, yeah, it's not enough to put the logo, but, I mean, they, they, they do it up really nicely. I mean, obviously, once you mouse over the uh, a, you know link that they send you, it, it, it's usually a giveaway. But, I mean, just the same. These get better and better every year, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the next step actually is outright stealing it from you. Well, I'll just say it like this. I love getting those emails because I know they're garbage. I know they're fake. I know they're not real. And honestly, what I do is now when I get those emails, I forward them to two people that I know. And I know, you know, one of them, I uh, forward them to knucklehead tech um, as a, and now I don't, so let me rephrase that. I don't forward them the emails because that would be not cool. I take the email, I save it as an attachment and then I send them the attachment him and uh, Info Lookup is another guy who I send these to. And it's mainly because I want them to see all the different kinds of things that are going on where people are getting fished, spear fished, scammed, however you want to put it. Um, and I love when one of them gets back with me and says, here was the result of here. And then they send me an EXE. And it's like, yes, give me, give me, give me. So I load up a VM and I drop the EXE in. I let it just sit there and just churn away for like a half an hour. And then I just go try to investigate to see what all it changed. And I got to tell you, man, they have gotten really sophisticated. So actually, this goes into a couple of other interesting things. So as you know, the Chrome OS, uh, I'm sorry, the Chromebook uh, is set up in a way that uh, they won't allow a malicious uh um, exe or whatever to hit the operating system or the operating system files theoretically couldn't you set up something similar in linux for example if you lock down the downloads folder you know um saying that everything anything that comes down into the download folder and you can set the permissions on that folder to just simply read only uh isn't there i would think that there's a way to also negate it without going too um what's it too crazy about locking other things down well the way i'll say it is kind of yes but it's like okay well mobile phones here's what i try to explain to people and these are the quickest way i can get people to understand if you have the ability to install a antivirus a security application then anything else on your phone has the same security level to uninstall that or to disable that. So the reason why the Chromebook security model works so well is because you have separated chips on the motherboard that at boot time get checked. And if the hashes don't match, they literally overwrite the operating system. Me as an end user, when I log into that Chromebook, I have no access to that chip. I have no access to that other system that's doing the actual check. So on a Linux installation, if you as a user have the ability to install, enable, start, whatever, any kind of security procedure, then anything you download could essentially have the exact same permissions to undo that. So 
on a regular installable like operating system, whether it's Windows or Linux, to have such a thing to where you have an actual lockdown in place would mean you would literally have to like install, you have to start the installation process from a secured third medium that you as a normal user don't have normal access to, but it requires like a jumper to be changed over. So when you put that jumper over, then you're booting to that other secure part. And then when you take the jumper and move it back, now you're booting into the normal operating system. And when you're booting into the normal operating system, the other one is unwritable. Um, it's possible. It is complex as hell is what I'm going to say. Um, to make it easy for end users like Chrome OS, I don't know how it can be done. To make it easy for advanced users, I think it's doable, but I think you need special hardware. Now, it's interesting because kind of what we're talking about is almost like a tiered permissions in a way. Because I do know that, for example, uh, one of the, the big things, and we'll keep this short, uh, at work, we're changing our model over from admin A accounts to tiered permissions. And it's funny because the, the idea is that there are three levels. Uh, you've got zero, which is simply the DOM admins. You've got uh, level one, which is for server admins. And then, of course, level two or tiered two is for the desktop. The idea behind these these tiers is that you're actually required to log into something different, like a jump box, to administer these permissions. And so, yeah, that's actually something I, I'm, I'm going to look at in the upcoming weeks because, you know, it's also one thing to, you know, have SE Linux running on your machine. Uh, uh, there's also app armor and, you know, you've got a myriad of other things to use, but, uh, there's also some other things that I think you can actually do uh, a little bit more locally to your, your machine to tweak it. Uh, let's see, there's actually a, uh, what is it? Hacking Linux, I believe was one of the, uh, earlier books out of the gate, uh, which, told you about folder permissions and how you can actually take the machine that you have installed and just make minor tweaks to the file system, which actually help lock it down. But, you know, there's a little bit more to it, too. There's a, a networking session a section and, uh, you know, hardware section, things like that. So um, I might actually be citing that book in the upcoming weeks because well, I'm also taking a Unix class right now. So there you go. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um. I'll say with the tiered security model, the biggest reason that can work is there's twofold. One, everything is auditable. When you log into that main jump box, everything is auditable. Everything is recorded. Everything is monitored. Everything is tracked. And on most of those systems, once you grant access, it's an onboard, offboard kind of thing, which I try to explain to people at work. We don't do either one good at all. The real true secret is when you log in as the super admin and grant server admin access, you also should have an automatic thing that says, and when will this access end? And you have a hard set date to when you're going to give access to this person for the next 24 hours. After 24 hours, all security gets revoked. And then when they need it again, they got to go through the same process, which I understand being painful. But at the same token, um, if you just turn security on and then you never turn it off, something's going to be compromised. Um, in the In every exploit, you can have, you know, 85 things in a row done perfectly right. But if that 86th thing is not done magnifique perfect, somebody will find an exploit to it and get through and basically make the rest of the 85 things useless. The weakest link is in the chain is the one that always does get 
compromised insecurity. Um, and I'll say it like this. Um, I do perceive a day when Linux will be more secure, but I hate to say it like this, Bruce. Right now, it kind of doesn't need to be more secure. Windows is the low-hanging fruit. It can't do a damn thing right when it comes to security. So when anybody wants to compromise a politician, a government, a company, or whatever, they shoot for that. Just give me the Windows OS. I'll make an Excel file or a PDF file that does some fishy, fishy fish and get in. And that's all I need to do to be successful because then I can island hop if they have Linux servers to them to get things done. Um, the beautiful thing about security is it doesn't matter how good you do a million things. It's the million and one thing that you don't do perfect that they're going to exploit. Well, and I'll be more curious about, well, you heard about the Iowa elections, and this is what happens when you have an yeah, app yeah. that you don't test. Well, and here's the thing, Bruce. Do you know this isn't the first, I'm saying this slow for dramatic pausing effect. Did you know this is the first election? This is, sorry, not the first election in Iowa caucus where they used a mobile app to tally up the votes? I did not know that. They're not talking about that. Back in 2016, a company did a mobile app for the Iowa caucus to report their numbers. Here's the, I do have the link. Here's the biggest difference. They spent two years developing the app. They had partners like Microsoft and like Amazon. They had, uh, it was eight months worth of testing. Okay. Just testing alone. Um, they had a budget. It was like 2 million plus dollars or whatever. Okay. Um, and they did the app, they ran the app, and they reported all the numbers perfectly. Thus, no one ever heard about them. Now, okay, I believe that was the RNC, the Republican Party that was the owners of that app. I think, I think, I thought I could be wrong. This election cycle, they literally tried to keep the company who was doing the app secret, number one. Number two, they would not let the company publish the app to secured platforms, a.k.a. the iPhone App Store or the Google Play Store. You had to sideload the application. Most people out there have no idea how to sideload an application. Number three, they keep the application interface a secret up to the day, two days before the election. The other software, they had weeks of training, weeks and weeks and weeks of training people could take. It was like two months worth of training people could take. This one, they didn't do that. This one, they did not have support set up right, nor did they have any testing done whatsoever. So uh, me, I'm a normal like po political idiot who gets sent this email, install this app. I spend two hours figuring out how to install sideloaded apps. Then they tell me to just log in and play around a bit a day before I have to report these numbers. So it really was one of those things as a third party looking at it in history's eyes, it was doomed to failure from the very beginning. They did everything completely wrong. Now, this is one of the few places where I'd like to go over the top. Not only should this, this particular situation be highlighted and underscored, but the company in, responsible should be shamed, shamed into uh, oblivion, given the fact that this is part of our election process. If we want to keep claiming that foreign countries keep hacking us, well, this is part of the reason why, you know, and I think the thing is for something that is so important, 
why wasn't it double checked and triple checked? You know, what kind of testing, if any, was done on this? And, you know, I think one of the things that I don't think Iowa realized is the effect that this is going to have in the voting population, because now they're the laughing stock. You know, what's worse is that, you know, the reputation was already tenuous to begin with. I mean, Iowa may be the first, but what does it matter if they can't even get their votes in a line? You know, and so now all eyes will focus on New Hampshire to see how they do. And at this point, I think that whatever happens in Iowa really doesn't matter. Well, and I'll say this conspiracy thinking wise, maybe maybe that was their goal all along. Um, People don't like the idea of a caucus. It's antiquated. It's old kind of thing. You're not supposed to stand in the corner of the room to count stuff. What decade is this? Number one. Number two, there are plenty of people out there that say, you know, this is a primarily old white person area. Maybe they shouldn't be the ones to do it first. Maybe they shouldn't be the one to represent an entire political system kind of thing. So uh, conspiracy theorists, people are going to say this was by design. This was meant to make Iowa look bad. This was meant to drive change. I don't know if I buy any of that, but I will say if that is the case, I don't know who's stupider. The people who want this kind of thing to fail, this sh- then literally the name of the company who did this app in 2020 was called Shadow. What drugs are you smoking where you think let's hire a company called Shadow? Okay. Then it turns out the company, the main people behind the company came from Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's campaigns. So it's like, huh, well, maybe maybe you should get somebody impartial, like somebody separate, somebody who actually knows technology and not somebody who's a political thing. Well, as soon as you said that, uh, I heard the Price is Right fail horn go off. (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, you know, it's funny because when the first option of electronic voting became uh, a reality, and that was with the Diebold machines. I thought, well, this is a good opportunity. Had it been done correctly, I could have totally been on board. But the moment they said it's locked down, it's proprietary, you can't do anything with it, you know, at that point, that that raised a lot of alarms. You know, it's funny because... We make a big deal about voting, and we apparently don't make a big enough deal about how we vote. You know, we've, we're still doing, as you said, to your point, we've got places like Florida who fail because they're still punching holes in cards. I mean, we are in 2020 now. How electronic voting isn't automatically done, I don't know. And it's something that is a big failure for a country that gets food delivered to your door based on what you ordered on your computer. This is crazy. I, I think I think it's time for an overhaul. But uh, luckily, we have partisan politics to get in the way. Oh, and it gets in the way gloriously too. Um, people don't vote. That's the sad truth of it. If eighty percent of the population voted, I guarantee you there would be enough of an uproar and enough uh, like like vitriol in enthused complaining that it would have to change. The truth, the sad truth of it is, if we get 30% of a population to vote in the United States of America, it is a record turnout. That's only one out of three. And I'll say it like this. The numbers are insane, insanely skewed. We're, okay, and here's like the um, uh, correlation kind of thing. I tried to explain to my wife, I'm over 40 years old. 
I can get a motorcycle now because the odds are, statistically speaking, I am not even going to come close to dying on that bike. Because once you go over the age of 40 and own a motorcycle, your life expectancy triples. Where before the age of 40, you're more likely to do stupid stuff and die on a motorcycle. Uh, the people who vote. Once you go above the age, I think it is 48, you have a three times more likelihood to vote, which means young people don't vote. Bernie didn't learn this back in 2016. You can have rallies with hundreds and thousands of young people smoking pot and getting drunk, but they ain't going to come out and vote for you. That's the sad truth of it. Um, so it doesn't matter. If I mean, look at MTV. They did that for like 10 years where they kept rocking the vote and they didn't rock anything. Young people don't vote. And I don't know what it takes for them to vote. Old people vote. That's why they will never upset senior citizens. They will never do anything about social security. And to be honest, old people are comfortable with the idea of a caucus. That's why I think they still do it. Well, actually, and to pile on to the MTV rock the vote, they even went as far as to actually go through the trouble of registering you automatically. And they still didn't come out. And I don't know. I What is it? Paris had their, their elections not so long ago. And they were mourning the fact that they only had a 75% turnout. And this, this country is shameful. You know, again, there are a lot of things that uh, I think uh, really need to happen. But, you know, until this country, I, I can't imagine what it would be like if half of the people in this country voted. You know, I mean, our... Yeah, I'm just beside myself. I, I hate this time of year. I hate elections in general. I hate all of the vitriol that comes around with it. The partisan politics is just way out of control. But I don't want to go too, too crazy here. All I want, though, the next time around, somebody says Russia has hacked the, electric, uh, the electoral system. I want to know exactly what's been hacked because just by saying it was hacked is no proof to me. I've not seen any proof of exactly what was hacked. And now I get it. They're not going to disclose the items that were hacked because it would require us fixing it <laughs> or at least exposing it to the general world of, hey, this is what's happening. But you don't think that Russia or or India or China are already uh, sharing this information? And if they're not sharing it, it's being stolen anyway. Yeah, and like um, guessing a senior citizen's password of password one, two, three, four, that's not hacking. And that's what happened the last time. Um, I'll put it like this. I hate to say it like this. We went on an extreme political rant, but the truth is the same can be said about free Libra open source software. What percentage of the population do you think really gives two cents about what's behind their code, where their code come from? People don't care where their meat comes from, where their oranges come from, where their water comes from. They really don't, unless it kills them is the only time they care about it. I don't know the percentage of people out there who cares anything about where their software comes from, where their phone comes from, where their laptop operating system comes from. Um, I would hate to say, I, I bet it's probably maybe 3% at most. Well, I think that's really... Yeah. <laughs> You know what? The bottom line is that you're correct. I think uh, I think every once in a while I let things let the the best get get to me in terms of thinking that there could be so much better, and it just takes a few informed people to do the right thing. But in the end, you know, you're correct. 
30% of the people will still vote less than 30, you know, uh, you know, I guess it's a lot more, you're accurate. The fact of the matter is, is that people don't care where certain things come from. It really is about convenience at the end of the day. Convenience is actually the overall message for the USA. If it requires any work, forget it, have somebody else do it. You know, which is why I'm surprised sometimes that they're so worried about immigrants because you know what? They're the only ones who are going to do the work. Where are you after that? Oh, yeah. I love immigrants because, you know, I don't want to do. I'm happy sitting in a cubicle all day. I don't want to do manual labor. I did manual labor for like eight years working in a warehouse, stacking up, you know, 20 to 40, you know, 6,000 pound skids in a day. I don't want to do that again. I can't do that. Um, and I'll, And I'll put it like this. If politics, if we, we in the Lennox ecosystem can learn anything from politics, if we in free Libra open source software can learn anything from American politics, it's this. We have our figurehead. Don't stop asking if he's telling the truth. Stop. Worry about, is he getting people energized? Can we energize the base? Can we radicalize the base? Because if we who know are passionate about things, trust me now, believe me later, it will rub off on other people because passion drives feelings, which drives opinions and choices. Facts don't change anything. Narratives change people's opinions and people's minds. And when they see passion in somebody's voice, when they see passion with something that someone's doing they take a genuine interest in that and that's how you change people's minds you don't change people's minds by wagging your finger insistently at them telling them how they're doing something wrong it never has worked just like telling somebody hey dude why don't you calm down that's never worked it never will work okay you have to literally distract them with something and then you know just try to win them over you don't ever win by being that person who says i told you so no but i think one of the things i'm kind of curious about though is now we're at this place where you and i've been in the game long enough that you know we're not we're not preaching to anybody you know we've we've already been through those those phases um you know we we have gone to points where somebody's machine crashes and you know you think that they might have a little bit just to do the basics. So you, you entertain them with, hey, would you be willing to try this out? And if it doesn't work, we can just go back to, to what you had and move on. Uh, I'm curious now what role a Linux Fest has in this. And is this something that we could use as a springboard uh, or a platform to showcase the best of the best? Because while there are engaging speakers, and anybody who's seen John Hall speak, it's always been a pleasure. Um, but it's the things that we do, you know, showcasing some of the applications. I mean, uh, I've often thought that one of the things that could happen, we've got a, a mass college of art here. It would be great if we had somebody from, you know, the GIMP team showing folks, hey, this is totally what we could be doing with that and showing a, a range of artists a new way of doing things. Same thing with uh, Berkeley, you know, with the, we have Ardor, which could easily record and be as competitive as some, some of the higher, more expensive software on, you know, dedicated platforms. Uh, 
I think that if I'm curious if I started something like that, how far would it get and where would we be in another five to 10 years? That's a good question. I'll say this. A tool is a tool. It almost doesn't matter what it was intended for. It depends how you use it. So when you say, what could a Linux Fest be in 2020? That's a really, it's a question that if anybody answers without thinking, you know, they're just making stuff up and they're not right. Um, a Linux Fest can be, amongst other things, a beacon, a, a beacon of just telling people, come, come around, come here, sit down. Let me tell you a story about this thing that happened back in the day and why you should care about it and how this can impact your future. I'll say this. The number one thing I, I firmly believe is you, you never play the short game. I, you don't want somebody when they go home to immediately just tear everything up and say, I'm only going to use Linux. What you want is, in my opinion, you want to get as many kids as possible between the ages of 20 and 30 and just indoctrinate them to a possible way of thinking and why history has proven open source will win and will only be more successful each and every year. And the more you know about it now, the better your job possibility will be future. There's no better convincing someone than saying this will help your career in the future because um, a lot of people that I've spoken to who are under the age of like 35 do not want to work until they're 65. They feel like it's insane to work till you're 65 or 67. They feel like there's no reason why they should not be able to work 60 hours a week right now, save up, and within 10 to 15 years, re, re, um, re um, tire. So if you can convince somebody that it's going to be beneficial to their long-term future to know more about this system, I think that's how you can get a lot of at least interest. Well, I think also we just hit on something that I realized. I think that this could be more effective if there are also ways you could actually teach them the stuff that they need to know to do their jobs better or, you know, at least be sort of in the same realm because I guess that's one of the reasons why it's always been sort of or if there's always been sort of a barrier. The fact of the matter is is that the stuff you use at home could be wildly different than the things you use at work. And so if there's no skin in the game for you there, then it, it kind of doesn't make sense. And I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I guess, you're yes, the short of it is that we have to show them what kind of value it has to them. And also long term, because, I mean, you know, one of the things that you could do, if it if it's something as simple as breaking it down to cost, you could simply say, listen, you know, you buy this laptop, you put Linux on it, you probably will never have to buy another machine for at least five, maybe seven years down the road, depending. You know, if you can future-proof it too, then you've added another couple of years on it. So in that way, it would appeal to somebody who cares about their environment because now you're not putting something out in the trash that, you know, freezes up after the third year. Uh, and, I mean, there are a lot of positives for putting Linux on. I guess it just needs a, um, I guess it just needs a place where you can post these things and say, here are the things, check it out, see if it's right for you. You know, and again, it's funny because the Free Software Foundation, their response to the the uh, sunsetting of Windows 7 was to uh, make the uh, 
code um, open source. You know, again, uh, yes, they are the free software foundation, but this was not the right message, I think. I think the real answer would have been before you jump to 10 and all of the baggage that comes with 10, consider this, you know? That was an opportunity I think they they and the Linux Foundation both missed. Well, I'll say I'll say it like this. One, you were, I think, on the right path. And to use industry logos, buzzwords, if you can give somebody the complete 360 degree reason of why to use Linux, not just because it's better, not just because it's more secure, not just because it's more private, but go into other avenues like literally it's better for the environment because it is. Uh, we don't purposely age out hardware to force you to buy new hardware, thus filling landfills. Um, you, you hit all those different areas, you're bound to hit upon a narrative that will get somebody's uh, private parts tingling is what I want to say. Um, and I'll say it like this, the free for the free software foundation to say to Microsoft, to open source or uh, free, uh, what do they call it? Upscale, whatever, upcycle Windows 7. I'll just put it like this. It shows their unbelievable, nonsensical, ignorant incompetency about how anything works in the world because Windows 7 is not Windows 7 and they don't even understand that one iota. Windows 7 is the same kernel that was in Windows XP which is the same kernel that was in Windows NT, which is the same kernel that was in Windows 10, which is in the same kernel that's in Windows Server 2012, which is in the same kernel that's in Windows Server 2019. There is zero chance at all, period, that Microsoft is going to open an entire operating system up for because it will literally leak the entire code base for everything else they've ever done in their history. So for the free software foundation to tell Microsoft, you need to open up windows seven. It's kind of like saying to the United States federal government, you know, you guys should be transparent about everything. What's the likelihood of that happening? Well, now you've made me sad. So there's no hope for me getting the open source code to uh, MS paint. No. And I'll say it like this. It could be one of those things, you know, I'm going to say to my wife, I really need a new truck and I'm going to keep complaining to her. I need a new truck with really, I'm just hoping I can get a new TV kind of thing. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Maybe they're geniusly asking for an entire operating system to be open sourced when really they just want this layer to be open sourced or this suite of applications be open sourced. Because I do think there are avenues where Microsoft could relinquish code to the ether and everybody would benefit, including Microsoft shareholders. But I don't have a crystal ball, nor am I good at business to be able to say what that could be and how that could work. And again, not to bring in enterprise into this, uh, a couple of things that Microsoft could definitely do, though, and it is within their realm to do it, uh, is so you've got PowerShell available in in Linux, and that's fine. The only thing is, is that it doesn't necessarily work because you're still missing modules that would actually make it useful. You know, if you had uh, the Active Directory module and the Exchange module available on Linux, then guess what? Then you are cooking with gas, and it could be something that 
you know, I could definitely live with uh, not being a uh, Linux admin. That would be the that would be a, a good second place for me. Oh yeah, I have no problem saying if I could completely administrate a Windows ecosystem, the Active Directory, the domain controllers, the DNS, the servers, if I could do all that from my Linux laptop, I can tell you right now, everything would be done quicker, more efficient, and be copyable to the next person to do. Because that's the one thing that I think uh, is really difficult to do in the Windows ecosystem is to have replayability to where you could literally hand a quote-unquote playbook to a new technician and say, here's how you do X, Y, and Z. With a lot of Windows things, it becomes a lot of, uh, you know, manually clicking through interfaces or, well, it depends about this. It depends about that. It depends about this to where you really need to be like a subject matter expert or you need to have your Google skills on point to where if it was all in modules that would be available on a Linux command line type thing. Um, I think it would literally benefit at least that layer of an employee dealing with the uh, Microsoft world. Now, one of the things that, again, not going against the credo and what we set to do out in the show, but, you know, there are some situations where we could make suggestions for people who are trying to use their Linux setup at home to, you know, remote in and do uh, work stuff. I mean, you know, I think that that's a legit reality for some of us. Um, and one of those things that I will shamelessly plug right now is uh, Remina. I used to use our desktop for remote or RDP sessions, but um, that's since uh, been, you know, the code on that is really stale and I don't even know if it's in any of the repos anymore, but I used Remina for the first time a couple of uh, months ago and I haven't turned back. It's a nice RDP session setup. Uh, they have a, um, a, a toggle that allows you to scale so you don't have like a little 800 by 600 uh, window to work from. So, um, yeah, you have you have a lot more options out there these days when you're working from home. Well, and I don't know if you knew this, but Vermina has a plug-in architecture, which I'm uh, I'm not going to lie, I kind of knew about, but I didn't really know about. The only reason now I really know about it is a super long-time listener and supporter, Paul, um, asked. Um, he's trying to do SSH. He's trying to do it through Putty. He doesn't understand why it works on a command line, but it won't work in Putty. And I'm like, well, why are you using Putty? This is Linux. Why don't you use um, 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 Menia? And then when I Googled, I saw Romania has plugin architecture with all kinds of plugins. And then he was like, why the hell didn't I know about this? I, 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 I don't know. But to be honest, I was almost guessing when you said, what should I use for SSH? Because I thought I used Romania in the past. And then when I went and Googled for it, I found out, yes, you can use SSH with it. Um, Romania is one of those tools. It's like a set it and forget it. You put it on your Linux desktop and you use it. And the application itself literally like disappears because you just launch the application to get done what you need to do. And it's easy to use and it just works and it doesn't break and you don't have problems. You don't have to click through millions of interfaces. It just works. It's the kind of application, I hate to say it, it's easy to forget that you're using it. Speaking of SSH, so DistroWatch changed over their servers uh, about two, three weeks ago. So I'm no longer using FileZilla because I just I don't have that ability to actually SFTP into the uh, server anymore. 
uh, they shut that part down. So that means I actually have to legit know how to SSH in and transfer files from my desktop over to the DistroWatch server. It's been a nice uh, uh, learning curve for me because I've never had to do this in the past. Um, and uh, so SSH is a pretty powerful thing. And uh, I think what I'll probably do is, uh, you know, write down a couple of tips and tricks as we go on for future shows because uh, I found it very useful. And uh, quite frankly, it's a lot speedier. I mean, you don't have the interface to deal with anymore. And uh, it's nice to walk away from FileZilla. I almost feel like a... I almost feel like a legit Linux person now. Well, I'll say this. Um, I genuinely like FileZilla a lot. It's one of those things, again, it's a tool. It's just one tool that you can use, and it has its purpose. But I'll say this. I don't know if you know about this one, and I don't know if this is applicable for your use case. But there is a system, an application, whatever, kernel module, I believe is a technical thing, that you can install literally called SSHFS, where you can literally have it to where you can, at boot up time or on demand, mount an FASSH session as if it is a remote file system and have it appear right in your file manager and browsable right in your file manager, just like it's literally a network file share on your network. I've used SSHFS now off and on for like six or seven years. Um, and I'll put, put, put it like this. The speed and reliability you get with SSHFS is crazy because it literally does, I'm trying to remember the right word for this, it actually does hash checking on copying over the network. So with like FTP, if you ever noticed, the speeds will go up and down like crazy. That's because it's not correctly compromising for errors. Where with SSH, built into the protocol, there's hash checking to do error checking on files, which means as soon as it recognizes there's an error, it asks to please resend that last packet. Please resend that last packet instead of waiting till the near the end to try to figure a thing out. So SSHFS to me is one of those golden tools that if I didn't have, I would, you know, be fine manually typing SCP and doing all these commands kind of thing. But with SSHFS, I can use the normal file manager and copy things back and forth. Actually, I'll take a look at that after the show. Uh, I'd love I'd love the simplicity of it, uh, but it's funny you mention SCP because that's exactly what I use. Oh, yeah. I mean, I use SCP right now to manually back up podcast.com where I literally issue like five commands one of them is to log in. The other one is to do a database backup. Then I disconnect. Then I do a file copy recursively, uh, checking sizes. Then I say copy the database down, checking sizes. And then I do a local server to copy it to my local server. And then once it hits there, it gets distributed to like three servers across the U.S. So hypothetically, my house could burn down and I'll still have copies. Let me rephrase that. My house could burn down and HostGator could be nuked and I would still have backup copies of everything on the server. Nice. <laughs> well, I know one thing. I don't trust anybody. I don't trust any company and I don't trust myself. So I try to have as many safeguards in place as possible. Well, and for me, like I said, I play without a net. So if it crashes, it all crashes. Well, and that's one thing I try to say to a coworker is every bit is not as valuable as every other bit. We have to be judge, jury, and executioner with every file that comes across our uh, hard drive. Is this valuable? Does this need to be backed up? And the odds are 
No, huge swaths of data that we get doesn't need to be backed up because wherever we got it from, we can get it from again. So um, my logic is you have to be selectable about what you back up, but then once you determine it needs to be backed up, then you copy the old three, two, one rules of backup, which is you keep it in three different pace, three different places. Uh, you have it in two different locations and you never use your copy as the one that you're editing. You always edit a copy of the file, not the original. And that's actually important for anybody who ever travels in the Etsy folder. Yes. Very, very true. Um, We've been going for at least a little bit of time now versus seriously, I think it's close to two hours. Um, is there any uh, thing you'd like to end off with? I have no words of wisdom right now. So uh, this is actually, uh, it turned out to be everything I had actually hoped it would be. So I'm good. Very cool. Very cool. And I will say uh, to the listeners out there, do not hesitate. Contact us podcast at Linux for the rest of us.com. Or you can join us on discord Mattermost, Twitter, Facebook, um, or you can call me up directly. I've literally said my phone number now on like every show, at least once. Um, um, we're here for you. Just like we hope you're here for us kind of thing. Um, we're here for each other. Uh, pod nuts is a community, uh, based podcast, uh, where we really do prize value the people around us. No one is greater or worse than anybody else. Um, so if you need somebody to talk to, you need somebody to chat to, or you want to help me or Bruce get something right that we said wrong, do not hesitate. Podcast at Linuxfortherestofus.com. Or again, communicate with us on any of those other platforms. Uh, and I'll definitely beg everyone, no matter what, do not forget. It doesn't matter if it's a smoke alarm, a video doorbell, or your home uh, cable box. Never forget, if you do not have root, then you really do not know who does. Uh, we'll talk to everyone again in about a week. <laughs>